Welcome to Preparing for Robots with your host, Dave Gerber. The future of technology and your place in the workplace are addressed here every week. Now, your host, Dave Gerber. Welcome, fellow humans. I'm Dave Gerber, your host of Preparing for Robots, and I'm so excited to kick off this episode of our international program here on Voice America's business channel. We have a great show lined up today and we have a very interesting guest. If this is your first time listening to the show, let me share some quick information. On Preparing for Robots, we have the opportunity to talk about the impact of all things digital on your personal, professional, business, and leadership future, everyone's future. And we will dive headfirst into this seemingly endless, all-encompassing, unknown digital revolution. I specialize in helping business leaders go after low-hanging fruit solutions to address costly pains associated with all types of organizational and personnel-related conflicts. Want to quantify how costly these conflicts are for your business? Go to conflictcalculator.com and you'll see the cost of human conflict. So I help businesses increase collaboration, save money, and generate revenue by harnessing conflict solutions. From consulting to coaching, training and facilitation, to multi-generational hybrid solutions. I provide business leaders and professionals answers to all types of people-related challenges. As we prepare for robots, humans are going to have to maximize their performance, increase their creative problem-solving skills, their conflict management abilities, and better adapt to the changing business landscape. We're talking about losing 50% of jobs in the next 10 years. What does this mean? My goal with this show is to help bring the discussion to life so that corporate boards and executives, leaders and professionals can better understand what is coming and what to consider. How do we help professionals become the best version of themselves to help our businesses prosper? We have to look at the digital world, simplify the conversation, and all be a part of the discussion. So I'm here to streamline complex digital subjects with the help of content experts. Let's hear what they want us to know in a way we can understand. We often don't pay attention because it becomes super technical and can even make our brain hurt, AI, AR, VR, all of it. And it's all crashing into us at the same time. How do we make sense of it? That's what this program is all about. We can help leaders from all different business industries consider the issues and then facilitate the discussion back within their organization. Let's get it started. While we normally look at the digital impact on humans, today we're going to look at a framework of one man's amazing firsthand story about September 11th, 2001 someone who was directly involved at the highest levels. We will learn about his experience, what was learned, and what new technologies and advancements are being used now. This is something everyone can relate to in some way, and I'm really excited to get started. In 2007, Lieutenant Colonel Darling retired from the U.S. Marine Corps with over 20 years of active duty service. He flew attack helicopters in the first Gulf War and in Somalia, Africa, and support Operation Restore Hope. In June 1998, he was selected to fly as a presidential pilot with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1, and in October 2000 was handpicked to work for the White House Airlift Operations Department. It was in that capacity that he supported the president, the vice president, and the national security advisor inside the President's Emergency Operations Center, or PIOC on September 11th, 2001. He is the author of 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House, and the president and CEO of Quantitative Analytics, LLC, and Turning Point Crisis Management USA, 
a crisis leadership and management consulting training company located in Stafford, Virginia. He's, he's also a great guy, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Welcome to Preparing for Robots, Bob. How are you today, sir? You know what, Dave? I'm doing great. Thanks for the great introduction. It's great to be with you today. Ready to rock and roll here. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. I know it's going to be another exciting episode of our show. We could talk forever about your background. I could sit with you for hours. We can't do that now, unfortunately. But Bob, let's get right to it and talk about 9-11. What was your role? Where were you? And what can you tell us about what your job was that day? Sure. You started off by saying I worked in the White House Airlift Operations Department. And that was October of 2000 when I was a presidential pilot supporting then-presidential President Clinton, I was asked by the squadron commanding officer to be a part of the White House military office. Essentially, we work up there in the Eisenhower building just adjacent to the West Wing, and our primary mission is to support the President of the United States with logistics. What folks don't realize is he only rides in our helicopters, he's only driven in our limousines, he's only seen by our doctors, supported by our Secret Service agents, and that whole presidential package needs to be in advance or placed in advance of Air Force One worldwide. And that was the role of airlift operations. Wow. So you have tons of experience. Um, Let's get right to that day. So the attack began at 846. What happened and how did they notify you? Well, the morning started for us where the president was in Sarasota, Florida. He was attending, he was you know, promoting his academic agenda at the Emma E. Booker Elementary School there in Sarasota. We were tracking his daily schedule. He was supposed to be wheels up, finished with the day on Air Force One about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He was going to return back to Washington, D.C. And like you said, 846, so it began. Someone ran into our office in airlift operations and said, hey, sir, quick, turn on CNN. Apparently a small aircraft just struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex. Like most Americans, that's what we did. We turned on the TV. We're watching it all unfold up there. As the aviators in the room, we all got together and said, listen, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that's a pretty big hole for a small aircraft or a Cessna. There must be much more to this story than we know. And, and like everybody else, we were watching TV, listening to the news, trying to gather more details about what was unfolding. Wow. So, as I understand it, the White House was evacuated at somewhere around 945. Where did you go? And tell us about your role within PIOC or the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. Sure, absolutely. But let me just back up just a second with you, Dave, to tell you that 846, the North Tower was hit. We found out American Airlines Flight 11. It departed out of Boston Logan Airport, was supposed to arrive in, in uh, Los Angeles at an LAX, off course, down the Hudson River, 846 in the tower. Soon after, we watched United Airlines Flight 175 come into view on our TV screens. I think the whole world watched this. And I remember yelling up at the TV screen going, hey, what's this moron doing trying to get a look at the hole in the North Tower before he circles to land at LaGuardia? And we saw it careen into the South Tower at what looked like full power you know, to us. I will tell you then, my boss was an Air Force, full bird colonel, came running in the room and said, everybody stop what you're doing, eyeballs on me. We have a full-blown terrorist event unfolding right before our eyes in the city of New York. Stand by for a lot of White House designated missions. And really, if I can just continue just for a second, I'll tell you that what that means is every time we have a national tragedy or an emergency in our, in our great country of ours, 
all these resources from the U.S. government, whether it's specialized, knowledgeable people or just money and equipment, everybody wants to get to the site of the tragedy. And they end up calling the Department of Defense and they request heavy lift transport to wherever that national tragic site is. Except there's only so many airplanes and too many people need to get there. So they end up calling the White House and they request one Alpha One. That's the highest priority mission, only approved by the president, vice president, or in this case, the chief of staff, because the president was out of town. And then they came back to airlift operations going approved, approved. As all government agencies were calling in, we were now talking to the Pentagon, having them divert every heavy lift asset in the sky over to Andrews Air Force Base so we can get them on the ground, fill them full of fuel, get ready for a wave of resources and people coming across town to get up there to help those people of New York. Wow. This is um, this is seriously um, for our audience is really an experience that many people are not going to get to hear about. So so tell us more. Are we at the White House yet, or or you you, you take the lead, drive the bus here? Sure, great. So we uh, just we just had United Airlines Flight 175 hit the South Tower. We got both towers burning. We're working on the one Alpha One priority missions. When Dave, I'll tell you, all of a sudden an airliner overflew the White House. This airliner was so low and so loud, we all froze right there in our tracks. Someone ran to the window and goes, holy mackerel, I just saw a big white jet and a hard left-hand turn heading west. All of a sudden on the TV screen, we had breaking news. We have a fire and explosion all across the Potomac River over at the Pentagon. We felt initially that this aircraft had just violated the presidential airspace over the White House must have been the same aircraft that just careened into the west side of the Pentagon. And Dave, sure enough, it turned out to be two separate aircraft. If you remember that day, 17 years ago, the Pentagon was struck by American Airlines Flight 77. Departed out of Dulles, went as far as Ohio, hijacked, came right back to Washington, D.C., did a right-hand 360 over Reagan National, and then careened into the west side of the Pentagon at 937. The aircraft that violated the White House airspace was none other than an Air Force E-4B, a weird 747 with a white cone on top designed to support the National Command Authority because on that day, on September 11th, we were having the Air Force was conducting a huge nuclear command and control exercise. This national-level asset was parked at Andrews Air Force Base. When the second tower was hit, it was activated real-world get to the President of the United States. When this big 747 took off out of Andrews, it had clear airspace directly to the President. That took him right over the White House. That's what got the Vice President and everybody in the West Wing that morning picked up out of their chairs by the Secret Service and forced underground into what we call the President's Emergency Operations Center, the bunker under the White House. But this Air Force 747 and that hijacked 757 literally must have passed each other in flight as one was flying to the president and one was hitting the west side of our Pentagon. Wow. Okay. So now everybody's getting moved down to the to that uh, operation center. Is that right? That's right. A few minutes later, we had breaking news. All the loudspeakers blared to life. Evacuate the White House was on every loudspeaker, both in the Eisenhower building and throughout the White House uh, itself. And now... 
my boss came in, said, shut it down. We're all going to the alternate site. I grabbed him and said, hey, sir, I can't leave. President Bush is obviously not coming back to Washington, D.C. with the Pentagon being attacked. Wherever he goes, he's going to need helicopters, limousines, snipers, doctors, Secret Service, the whole thing. He goes, well, you can't stay here. Go across the street. Go underground inside the President's Emergency Operations Center, the bunker under the White House. I can't tell you how deep it is or how thick the walls are or exactly where it is. I'm only allowed to say it exists. And do logistics once you get there. And sure enough, got across, got across the street. I showed my credentials to Secret Service, and literally they let me in. And before long, I'm standing behind, you know, and before a steel door. I requested permission to enter. Door opens, door closes. It's about 9:45 that morning, 9:47, and I'm inside the President's Emergency Operations Center. My mission is to do logistics and support the President of the United States. Now, I, I've got to ask you, like, just as a man, as a person, just a human, right? Because this show is dedicated to the impact of digital on human beings. So I'm really human focused. Just as a person, what goes through your mind when that door slams shut? Well, it's a great question. And I got to tell you, just what you would do or anybody else that's trained to do that, you start to compartmentalize. You have a job to do. Your mission is to do, whether it's answer the phones or whether it's to carry the president to safety or whether it's to operate on a wounded veteran. You're going to do your job the best way you possibly can. And my job that was assigned to me was to do logistics in support of the president. And I went down there strictly with that sole purpose in mind. However, when I walked into the bunker complex, the first person I ran into was Vice President Cheney's military aide. He was an Air Force major, a good friend of mine. And I pulled him aside and said, hey, hey, Tom, I'm here to do logistics. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, you know what? Forget logistics. I need you to help me answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. And I'll tell you what, I looked down at this long console, Dave, of military members who were doing their job, answering the phones, talking on radios, taking notes, and I can see at the very end there was an empty console, an empty desk, and as I got closer to it, I could hear the phone ringing. So no kidding, I ran over there, I dropped my planning kit, I picked up that phone call. It was about 9.52 that morning. It happened to be a direct line to the upstairs West Wing situation room. And now, because the vice president, everybody was forced underground, all information is being pushed down into this bunker complex. So here it is at 9.52, when I answered the phone, I said, Major Darling. And the other guy in the upstairs situation room said, Major, we have another hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound, Washington, D.C. Wow. Okay, so now we've got a, you've, everybody's triaging this while they're triaging everything else. Go ahead. So immediately I, I said, you're going to have to hold on. I spun to my right to pass it to my friend Tom, the military aide for Vice President Cheney, and who's standing next to me but the Vice President himself. Behind him was his wife, Lynn. Behind her was Dr. Rice, her deputy, Stephen Hadley. The Secretary of Transportation, Norma Mineta, was right behind them because everyone who was in the West Wing that morning was now forced underground as a result of the violation of that Air Force E-4B over top the White House and being pushed down into the bunker complex, coming over to my console to hear about this new hijacked aircraft. I snapped too. Mr. Vice President, sir, we just got word 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, we have another hijacked aircraft coming at us. 
He turned away from me, Dave. There was three speaker boxes up on the wall. They were all landlines. He can talk to anybody he wants to. The first person he patched him, that he was patched through to talk to was the the floor director, if you, if you will, of the FAA Herndon, Virginia Command Center of the FAA. And he goes, Rick, it's the vice president. I was just told we have another hijacked plane somewhere south of Pittsburgh, inbound, Washington, D.C. Can you confirm that for me? And before long, this guy, Rick, Rick on the other end, came back said, Mr. Vice President, that aircraft is not talking. It's not squawking a transponder code given air traffic control, altitude, airspeed, and direction. It's way off course. Sir, that's a hijacked aircraft. All right. I'm going to cut you off there because we have to talk about a shootdown order of United Flight 93, but it's time to hear from our sponsors and get these important messages. When we come back, we're going to ask Bob to continue on this story. Shootdown order, collapse of the South Tower events, DEFCON 3. We're going to look at technology and how it's changed. This is awesome. I'm your host, Dave Gerber, and you're listening to Preparing for Robots on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Learn more about Dave's keynote speaking and podcasts, Preparing for Robots, The Conflict Healer, and Pre-Marriage Questions. Check any of your normal podcast sites, his LinkedIn page, and his websites, davegerber.com, davegerber.info, and preparingforrobots.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events Synergy development and training helps leaders maximize human performance with standardized conflict management and professional development solutions in order to increase retention, save money, and generate revenue. Go to SynergyDT.com and use the conflict calculator to learn about your organization's human conflict costs and find out what our training programs can help you do about it. That's SynergyDT.com to learn more. Or email Dave Gerber questions and thoughts to questions at SynergyDT.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Preparing for Robots with Dave Gerber. If you have a question or comment about the show, Dave welcomes your comments by email to questions at SynergyDT.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dave Gerber, and you are listening to Preparing for Robots on the Voice America Business Channel. We are here with our international audience and my very knowledgeable guest, Bob Darling. I want to jump right back into this. We set up a teaser before we started. You got to pick up here for us. We're talking about the shoot down order of United Flight 93 uh, and, and, and more. So where are we at now, Bob? Well, we just got word from the Situation Room upstairs about uh, 9.52 that morning that we have another hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh heading towards Washington, D.C. The Vice President Cheney, now talking to the FAA Herndon, Virginia Command Center, has just confirmed, been, been confirmed, that this aircraft is not talking. It's way off course. It's definitely a hijacked aircraft. Well, now the Vice President reaches out directly to the Pentagon through through us and airlift operations, talking to the National Military Command Center, basically the war room over the Pentagon. He's looking for the other member of the National Command Authority, the two people in U.S. government who can give offensive lethal instructions to the U.S. military are essentially the President of the United States and the Secretary of Defense. Unfortunately, when Vice President Cheney calls the Pentagon looking for air support against this new hijacked aircraft coming at Washington, D.C., the Secretary of, of Defense is now in the parking lot at the Pentagon assisting with the wounded from the impact of American Airlines Flight 77. A pretty admirable thing for him to do, but not his appointed place of duty. So we got the President trying to get airborne in Air Force One. We got the Secretary of Defense out in the parking lot. And finally, Cheney then turns to this one-star general on the other end of the phone and goes, General, I want you to listen to me. I want two F-15s. I want them at an Otis Air National Guard base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this aircraft down. I remember covering the receiver and turning and staring at Vice President Cheney going, wait a minute, I thought our job was options for the president, and I realized I wasn't talking to an ordinary politician or looking at an ordinary politician for sure. He's a former congressman from Wyoming, a chief of staff for President Ford, a secretary of defense for the first President Bush, and now vice president of the United States. He didn't just say, get me fighters. He knew we had F-15s in Otis. Yet we have F-16s in Langley, Virginia, F-18s in Florida. He knows all the war plans. He knows all the type model series air we had on, on alert. We couldn't have had a better crisis leader when Cheney took the helm of our nation and ordered our fighters out of Otis Air Force Base to get airborne to engage this aircraft, Flight 93, before it reached its target in Washington, D.C. We heard on all the, all the SATCOM radio, satellite radios, that the F-15s were airborne. They were supersonic, somewhere around 1,200 miles an hour, closing in on United Flight 93 when they wanted to be confirmed weapons free to engage. And without hesitation, Vice President Cheney said, shoot that aircraft down. Just then I got to tell you, Dave, if I can just keep going, is um, before long, it was about 10.05, five minutes later, we had a military operation in progress. Everybody was silent in the bunker complex. All eyes are on Vice President Cheney. When we heard over our satellite radios, aircraft down, aircraft down 68 miles south of Pittsburgh, no survivors. We immediately thought on orders from the vice president to the U.S. military out to our fighters that we, in fact, had engaged United Flight 93. But before long, those same loudspeakers blared back to life that the F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. Forty ordinary Americans did extraordinary things by uniting, uniting themselves 
against these terrorists. There were t- a lot of them were talking to loved ones back home. We realized three planes, three targets. This wasn't a ransom or a hijack mission. This was a suicide mission, and they needed to take charge of it. And that's what they did. Whether it's Tom Burnett, Todd Beamer, they you know came out with the famous "Let's Roll." We believe they stormed the cockpit, broke through the door, got their hands on these terrorists. But that plane went completely inverted, and we believe hit straight down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at over 500 miles per hour. The true heroes of the day, ordinary Americans saving the lives of others, preventing these terrorists from reaching their target in Washington, D.C. Great American patriots, we must never forget that total and enormous sacrifice that they made on behalf of all of us. Absolutely, absolutely uh, heroic, and it's great for you to bring um, attention to that and to this story, too. I, I appreciate that. So, so keep going. So talk to us about this and DEFCON 3. Sure, I got to tell you, right now, the, the vice president, we just got past Flight 93. He's talking to the president of the United States. They're talking about those events, and immediately thereafter, not too long after, the president would call for an air threat conference. An air threat conference is when he gets his his cabinet on the phone. Everybody then is supposed to tell the president what they know and what they're doing to secure and protect and advance the agenda of their areas of responsibility. So they bring everybody up. We're listening in for the bunker complex. The president basically having an emergency cabinet meeting and they're going around on this satellite radio. We're hearing every cabinet member with their 30-second to one-minute spiel for the president of the United States. It was Donald Rumsfeld. He was back in the building now from the parking lot. He was in the National Military Command Center. He came up on the net, and he goes, Mr. President, I recommend that we move our strategic nuclear forces from DEFCON, Defense Condition 4, down to DEFCON 3, which is a higher state of readiness. Defense Condition 5 is peace. Defense Condition 1 is imminent nuclear war. We're at 4. He recommended we go to 3. What happens when a DEFCON condition changes? All military services have a playbook. They have a classified playbook. They have things they have to do. Bombers will get loaded. Marines will mount out. Ships out of port. Bases get hardened. Recall rosters go out worldwide. Whenever a DEFCON condition changes, the U.S. military just moves. It was the quickest way to get the U.S. military worldwide back to work and on, a, on an offensive posture, if you will. America's going to war. We just have to figure out who we're going to war with. And that's what the president did. He ordered us full-scale, worldwide, DEFCON 3, standby DEFCON 2. Dr. Rice sitting next to me received the order from Vice President Cheney to make it happen. She called from the from the PIOC or the bunker over to the National Military Command Center, the Pentagon, executive order of the President of the United States, move our strategic nuclear forces from DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. You heard the Pentagon call Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, the home of NORAD, the North American Aero Defense Command. They buttoned up the mountains for the first time in history as our American forces went from DEFCON 4 up to DEFCON 3, if you will, worldwide. It was a very pivotal moment for the United States to say, hey, we're, you know, we're now on an offensive posture. We're done taking body blows from terrorists. It's time to defend this homeland and, and take the fight uh, to those folks around the world that deserve it. So tell, tell me, just to, you know, so our audience gets the even more uh, picture on this, like as you're looking around the room, you know, in the round the bunker, who's who's there? Are they on cell phones? Are they on? Are people on landlines? Like, 
you know, you said satellite phones. I mean, we know that there's a lot of technology, regardless of the level, that's being used through this process. But who's there? Can you give us just a little bit more of a picture before you talk about the South Tower? Sure. And let me just describe. You know, the bunker has an executive comp side of an executive complex. We have the big oak table and, and the fancy TVs. We're in the operations center, you know, just adjacent to the executive side of the bunker complex. This is where all the military members are working. And, and a lot of them are, are doing their job. And there was a lot of other jobs, some classified, other, other tasks going on down there. I just happened to be standing next to Vice President Cheney and Dr. Rice as we are, as we are engaging with the Pentagon. But nothing but radios, computers, TV sets. It's a pure war room. It's an operations center. And the people, everyone who was in the West Wing, some were down there. Some were being asked to leave. If you weren't part of the national security apparatus, they had no business being in that room. And they were literally pushing people out the door that didn't have a role to play, so they just weren't strap hangers. It was truly Cheney in charge, and Cheney was getting himself surrounded by military members to keep the president informed of of what was happening in the world from his perspective and what executive decisions he needed him to make at that time. And that was really taking place on the operational side, not the executive side down there. Okay. All right. So so now pick us up with this story here where we're talking about the collapse of the South Tower and events. Sure. Just a few minutes later now, America's worldwide DEFCON 3. Uh, all of our forces are on alert. Everybody's doing what they need to do to get America on a war footing. And all of a sudden, everybody was uh, screaming up at the TV set that, in fact, you, you know, I, you know, we kind of glanced over, but we'd already lost the South Tower at 9.59, and now it's 10.28, where, in fact, we lost the North Tower. I remember, I'll never forget that moment, because what people saw on the TV set, you know, was not something they were willing or able to mentally comprehend. They were, they, they were literally yelling at the TV set, going, hey, Mr. Vice President, that's not true. There's no way two 110-story landmark buildings can be on the ground in a city of 8 million. Literally 750,000 people work in the South Street Seaport area alone. That's just not true. Maybe we lost 20 floors. Maybe we lost the antenna. Maybe we lost some. And it was Cheney said, everybody stop. Can someone tell me how many people work there? Somebody flipped over a sheet of paper. Suddenly he, he flipped over a sheet of paper. He started scribbling, going, get me the president. Mr. You know, President Bush came up on the net, and he goes, Mr. President, we lost the North Tower, sir. My best guess, we have 40,000 dead Americans in the city of New York. President Bush was silent. We thought it was one of those weird times where the phone dropped off the network. And all of a sudden he came back and asked, Hey, has anyone spoken to Mayor Giuliani? Any, any phone calls or word from the mayor's office? Any information from the mayor's office? He said, no, sir, I don't have anything from the mayor's office. He goes, well, what about the hospitals? What about the hospitals in New York City? What are they saying as far as dead and wounded? What kind of information are we getting from them? He goes, sir, I, I have nothing from the hospitals. He goes, Dick, what about the Federal Emergency Management Agency? Where are they? What are they seeing on the ground up there? And he had to say, Mr. President, FEMA hasn't even left yet. So here it is an hour and 45 minutes after the attack on America began. We're a mighty powerful nation, but it takes a lot longer to get all those resources across Washington, D.C., all those airplanes on the ground at Andrews Air Force Base, and all those people airlifted up there to New York City where we can start making an effective aid package, if you will, for the people of New York. Hour and 45 minutes after the attack began, the people of New York were still on their own. There was no 
organized, concerted effort from the U.S. government at that point, helping the people out. Extraordinary Americans doing extraordinary things uh, to save each other on the ground. At one point, I just want to tell you, Dave, we thought we had 40,000 dead Americans. We had a horrific number, but it was less than three because shopkeepers opened up their doors. Um, lawyers went running back into the building alongside doctors and clerks to save the life of others. People with boats went running over to Manhattan Island to help, you know, evacuate people off of uh, on the East River side and the Hudson River side. It was just a concerted effort of great Americans doing their part to help fellow Americans, and the and the death toll, though horrific, was a lot less than what we originally had told the president. Well, you know, it's, it's good to point that out. This and, you know, the recent hurricanes and the ones in the past, you know, regardless of the quality or what technology we have, it still is going to, as you've pointed out several times, going to point, you know, directly and fall on the shoulders of, of Americans, uh, in this case, for, you know, American, you know, tragedies to, to step up. Um, and the technology component is, is there, obviously, but, you know, if people aren't risking their lives, um, you know, and taking these types of actions, then everything's going to still fall short. Um, Clearly, it sounds like people were, you know, very well trained and really taking to um, following through. Probably, I would would have to guess that in some ways, you didn't even really have time to process everything because you were, you were focused on, you know, how do I, you know, maintain communication, lines of communication between the people that need to make decisions. Is that right? That's absolutely right. But and also, the people were doing their jobs. You know, if you had, if your job was to answer the phone, that's what you did. If your job was to work with, you know, other outside agencies to get relief up there to New York City, that's what you did. I was so impressed that despite the horrific events happening around us, everyone was relatively calm and focused on the job at hand and getting the the information they could to either Dr. Rice, the National Security Advisor, or Vice President Cheney about as rapidly as they could in an organized, accurate manner so he could talk to the president and they can make national level decisions on behalf of all of us. And I think another human side of leadership is sort of what you pointed out, which is you step up and you do whatever needs to be done. It's, it may not be the time, right? This is clearly not the time to figure out, well, I normally am the head of logistics. And I know you, you needed to pick up the phone. You did that and you made things happen. Um, I'm sure you must've seen other people doing the same thing. Everybody uh, that I saw was was just rising to the occasion. We're all Americans. I'll tell you, you know, not to di- not to divert into a political discussion, but we're all Americans all the time. And whether we fall on left and right sides of the aisle, when America's under attack, you can count on everybody to do their best, no matter what the tragedy is, no matter what their party affiliation or thoughts. We rally behind the flag, and in this case, everybody was down there rallying behind the vice president and the president to make sure that they were doing their job on behalf of all Americans that day. Yeah, and I know that people who are listening from all around the world, whether it's Ireland or Asia or wherever it is, you know, they're, they, I've been to all these places, you probably have too. These people step up. Everybody steps up. This is the human dynamic. It's, it's you know, when we talk about things going digital, the one thing that the digital robots, all of it will never have is a heart. You know, and so that's where this stuff, this stuff comes from is, is a heart. And I think it's a good dichotomy that we talk about this and we highlight it on a show like this. So, hey, look, it's uh, time to take a break to hear the important messages from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to ask Bob about changes in safety and technology and the role of the Patriot Act, both in general and with respect to this digital conversation. 
I'm your host, Dave Gerber, and you're listening to Preparing for Robots on the Voice America Business Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Synergy development and training helps leaders maximize human performance with standardized conflict management and professional development solutions in order to increase retention, save money, and generate revenue. Go to SynergyDT.com and use the conflict calculator to learn about your organization's human conflict costs and find out what our training programs can help you do about it. That's SynergyDT.com to learn more. Or email Dave Gerber questions and thoughts to questions at SynergyDT.com. Learn more about Dave's keynote speaking and podcasts, Preparing for Robots, The Conflict Healer, and Pre-Marriage Questions. Check any of your normal podcast sites, his LinkedIn page, and his websites, DaveGerber.com, DaveGerber.info, and PreparingForRobots.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Preparing for Robots with Dave Gerber. If you have a question or comment about the show, Dave welcomes your comments by email to questions at synergydt.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dave Gerber, and you're listening to Preparing for Robots on the Voice America Business Channel. We are here with our international audience and my very knowledgeable guest, Bob Darling. We're talking about the events of 9-11. We're getting his perspective, his inside story. We're looking at and sharing more about the human side. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited to, to continue. I wish we had all day, but let's jump right in again. Uh, Bob, bring us back from where we were from before break, but I'm really trying to move us towards now uh, how the world has changed since 9-11 uh, with respect to, you know, safety and communication and, and the Patriot Act, I know is something we have to talk about. So can you take us, take, sort of bring us up to date and then go into the Patriot Act for us? Yeah, absolutely. So we just lost, I just want to tell you, we just lost the, the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We had four planes and four targets. We had 2,996 Americans lost and uh, our, our world was changed forever for sure. Now, the, uh, we got the cabinet home, president's back home. He addressed the nation on a joint session of Congress around September 20th, 2001. America, the world, everybody now is, is gearing up for the changes that must take place, whether it's 
the improvements in American security, the justice that everybody wants for these terrorists that are now located in caves or halfway around the world, and the whole the whole world. Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was invoked. The whole world is supporting the United States as we go on our hunt for these terrorists that attacked our nation, worst attack in American history, and now we're, uh, we're on a mission to bring all of them to justice. And as a result of that, so many changes to include what we're going to talk about, this Patriot Act, are now going into effect to give America the tools it feels it needs to bring the entire... Um, portfolio of power against these terrorists, if you will. And and before you jump into that, I'll say, you know, this is definitely a serious issue in, with respect to the larger discussion. And um, after this event, I know for myself, the conversations I had with colleagues, uh, I was teaching high school at the time, I was engaging in really difficult philosophical discussions around the the, the balance between freedom and safety. And so, and then we bring it right, then we get to the Patriot Act. Yeah, the Patriot Act brought into effect October 26, 2001. It's really the president now going to Congress, getting this passed, this legislation passed. So the president's hands are not tied. We have enormous capability with our National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, and we're going to bring the full spectrum of power against those responsible. The the sticking point, a rubbing point, is is that we don't know which one is. Uh, you know, we have safeguards under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution against illegal search and seizure, and we don't know where that boundary line is between terrorists and Americans. And now this Patriot Act, which is an all-encompassing act to give the president these tools he feels he needs, are now in in some ways, many ways, crisscrossing that border into infringing on on people's um, protected rights, civil rights, if you will, um, into tracking down these terrorists, and it became a real sticking point for, for many of uh, those in Congress and the Americans around the world. And, and the Patriot Act is still a part, right, uh, in terms of how the, the game has changed with respect to security? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Patriot Act essentially let the president and uh, those you know, in power, listening to phone conversations, read emails, try to determine the size and the scope of our uh, terrorist networks around the world. And they gave, they, they were, you know, it was designed to deter and punish terrorist attacks against the United States. But it was literally looking for networks both here and abroad to try to figure out just how how involved or how invaded we were with these terrorist networks, whether in the United States or halfway around the world. But the, Par- the Patriot Act was designed to give the president the ability to do that research and find out where these terrorists are hiding, whether in the borders of our country or, like I said, in a cave in Tora Bora, to get to, w- to do what was necessary to protect America. Yeah, and I would, I, I know, I'm not going to assume, but we would all assume that the technology to help track down is far more advanced and has continued to get uh, more advanced. We talk about on the show Moore's Law and technology, you know, moving it, you know, the, so fast um, that it would probably be interesting just to do a show dedicated to all the new things that are being used to, to track them down. Now, one of the things 
you had talked about was a hardened government and public office buildings. Can you fit that into this context? Well, you know, sometime right after 9-11, I think it was November of 2001, we formed, the first thing that was hardened is we formed the Transportation Security Act, the TSA, and the Transportation Security Agency, if, if, um, and that was designed to improve the security at our airports, all American airports across the country. Soon after that, we formed the Department of Homeland Security, and that was also um, like a year later in November of 2002. And all these government agencies are now being restructured, and that was where 22 different agencies were rolled up under one Department of Homeland Security to give the president better visibility and communication into the 17 intelligence agencies and other agencies that were now designed to protect the homeland from these type of terrorist events. So we are restructuring America. We're putting in technology. We're increasing the presence on the ground at airports. We're merely bringing in better scanners, videos, uh, recorders. We have, you know, better... Um, not just surveillance systems, but baggage systems that, that kind of help America not suffer the same fate that we did on 9-11-2001. Yeah, I mean, and I think if you're a traveler and you've been on in the airlines, you know, taking planes for the last 15 years, you've probably experienced those changes along the way. And, um, you know, people, I, I'm a firm believer that we need to have it as secure as possible um, because good people are doing good things and we all want to get safely where we're going and we learn the power of uh, automobiles and the power of destruction of airplanes and we, we can't play around with this. So safety is such a huge issue. Um, you know, so before I sort of shift, I mean, I'm assuming that you've seen, can you talk about any of the sort of technological differences, even if it's generic with respect to communications or platforms, et cetera, for the people who are interested in the technical side? Well, I'm not a technical person by trade, but, but what I can tell you and I, I want people to focus on is um, Americans have a right to security. We have a right not to be attacked by terrorists from around the world, but we also have an inherent right against, like I said before, illegal search and seizure. So there is a fine line. Sometimes we tend to rush technology out forward like we did after 9-11, and we, yet we don't have the legal safeguards in place to make sure that 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 technology stays in check. And, then, and we end up playing catch-up. So for I think for the last 17 years since 9-11, it is easy to, to buy the latest and greatest gadget out there with better sensors and detection systems and our ability to intercept emails and phone calls, and yet our legal system isn't caught up with what the left and right parameters are for that technology to be used. And I think that's a, that's a pushback, that's a necessary pushback against some of these technologies to make sure that we are not being infringed upon and our freedoms are not being lost at the sake of victory. Because in the end, without freedom, uh, you know, then victory doesn't matter, then does it. So I, I think that's a real, that's a, that's a discussion that's been going on for a long time, and and it's a real important discussion. And I want you to know I'm, I'm pro-freedom, I'm pro-safeguards, and I'm, I'm pro-safe America. But I do want to say just day before I get out too far ahead of myself that since 9-11, we have been in all four corners of the globe. 
whether it's our intelligence agencies or our military members or our first responders or our communities or our local banks who now have business continuity programs and they're training their employees to recognize, mitigate, respond, recover, and learn from crisis. We're becoming, and we've, we've been safe for the last 17 years aside from a couple of homegrown terrorists that have done real damage to our country, but as far as a foreign power or a foreign terrorist group having another effect like 9-11, we've been very, very effective against those type of organizations because of the hard work of the millions of Americans that work behind the scene where you and I don't even know doing their part, using all the tools available that we uh, gave them as citizens of the United States so they can continue to keep us safe. And, and I'll never lose sight of their sacrifice and how important their work is and how grateful we should all be whether we know what they're doing or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you pointing that out as always. You know, I want to ask you a, a, a global security question. It's not political. China just said they will win the race to AI by 2030. So it's a huge claim. Uh, I would think that they have way more people working on it than we do by sheer numbers. Uh, I could be wrong. But how does the U.S. or any government win the race to be first with artificial intelligence? And I don't know if you know the answer to that, but do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't know if I have the right answer on it, but my thought is this, Dave, that artificial intelligence is it's coming. It's coming in a wave, and everybody sees it happening. Everything from uh, Alexa inside of our houses to our keyless cars, and we're, built, we're able to lock our homes and arm our homes from halfway around the world using all this new technology that we all love so much. Artificial intelligence, um, you know, computer thinking and learning is happening. I don't know what winning, when China says they're going to win the race on artificial intelligence, what winning looks like. It's not like putting a man on the moon where it's one and done. Either you did or you didn't. It's changing by the minute. And I think, in my opinion, winning is, is making sure that not only are we rolling out technology, but we're communicating that technology back with our academic institutions and we're creating the right college graduates who have the right skill set necessary to take advantage of this new technology, to bring it to the public sector, to save lives, to harden buildings, to track terrorists, to, you know, to do uh, more efficient, less intrusive surgeries. If we're going to do it, if we're going to roll it out, I think winning is the ability to roll it out along a paradigm where we're all rolled out together. The country is communicating what it needs, and we're, we're not one ahead of the other, but yet we're all shoulder to shoulder to make sure that not only do we have the technology, but we know how it's going to be used. We know how it's not going to be used, to, like I said, to protect our safeguards, to safeguard our freedoms. And we got to develop young minds that can properly operate and take advantage of this new technology. Yeah, and I think what you said was a great piggyback to the sort of what we were talking about and what you mentioned right before with the legal concept. You know, I think that's going to be really huge. I think that in every industry, we're going to see technology outpace uh, legislation. Uh, for instance, um, if we look at one of the uh, the other shows that we're doing on that we just did on um, uh, what was it driverless cars. Right now we're going to get to driverless planes. So we got Uber who by 2020 or 2021 wants to have fully functional air 
you know, taxis. Well, what's going to happen in terms of the legislation, whether that's going to be possible or not? So I think it will be interesting to see how legislation slows down innovation. And it will also be interesting to see how people who don't play by the rules, how are they able to get unfair advantages um, to pursue these new technologies faster than uh, company, uh, sorry, countries like ourselves who are setting up uh, a paradigm where there is still freedom and, uh, as well as safety. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a great point you just made, and I'll give you an example. Everybody then went running out, and everybody has an unmanned drone right now. You know, they all want to operate those drones and take better pictures and follow themselves around. But then how does that drone now integrate with our air traffic control system so we don't have a catastrophic plane crash somewhere because it ran into or ingested a drone inside the engine? Mm -hmm. And you can see drones have been with us now for 8 to 10 years already, and the FAA has has recently just come out with Part 107 that says if you're going to be a drone operator, you got to be certified by the FAA to operate that drone drone in a safe manner. You got to take a test, pass a background check. You got to have safeguards and parameters in place. But you see how that lagged. Uh, you know, everyone's yeah. been selling drones and Best Buy for years, and now finally our air traffic control system has got its, those left and right parameters in place. I'm hoping with the next wave of AI that our legal system doesn't it's okay to slow it down. It just can't tie its hands because it's coming whether you want it or not. My, you know, my brother used to always say, build it and they will come, and that is really true. You build the technology and it's going to get out there, and now we need a more nimble um, legal system in place that can ingest what this technology is and rapidly come up with ways to safely implement this technology while protecting America's interest and security in the process. This has been awesome. Real quickly, one thing you love about technology, Bob. Well, I love technology because it makes our life easier. It saves lives on the battlefield. It gets me from point A to B faster. and enables me to talk to you via a computer and have a great conversation for the last 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Technology is something that you know we can all... We've all benefited from and we will continue to benefit from in the, in the future. I just want it to continue. To, I want it to help me win wars and save lives. And that's my awesome. goal uh, awesome. for, for technology moving forward. That's awesome. Bob, we're all out of time this week. Um, it's been fantastic having you. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, we've energized the audience for on a Monday and for the rest of the week as well. Check this out. We must be preparing for robots. Dealing with human workplace conflict, communication, emotional intelligence, creative problem-solving, overcoming leadership challenges. The ability to do these well is the future, the value, and the ROI for humans. If you want to talk more about that or the impact of all things digital on human beings, email the program at questions at synergydt.com. Tune in next week for our show where we might simplify blockchain and crypto, get a better understanding of machine learning, or look at new innovations coming our way. Wishing every human on the planet a great day today and a jump start to the rest of your week. You've been listening to Preparing for Robots on the Voice America Business Channel. I'm your host, Dave Gerber. I love you, and we are out of here. Thank you for listening to Preparing for Robots. Join Dave Gerber next Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy the week.